Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Heavenly Father, we confess to you that there's not a one of us who hasn't struggled with some form of legalism, some form of self-righteousness, pride, and arrogance when it comes to our spiritual lives. But we thank you that you have given us the ability in Christ, through your word, to know the difference. And I pray that we can know the difference between the legalism and what is produced by your spirit. May we walk in humility and love as a body, and may you produce in us from the inside out that sweet fruit that you want to produce. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On August 23, 1973, Jan Eric Olson, out on parole from prison, attempted to hold up a bank in Stockholm, Sweden. When the police showed up, Olson took four people as hostages. A standoff between Olson and the police lasted for six days. At one point during the standoff, Olson contacted the Swedish prime minister to say that he was going to kill every one of the hostages. He put on one of the hostages, Christian Enmark, on the phone. She said to the prime minister, I am very disappointed in you. I think you are sitting here playing with our lives. And despite Olson's threat to kill her, Enmark had decided that she felt safer with the bad guy than with the police. In fact, she wasn't the only one. (laughs) Other hostages actually resisted rescue attempts and later refused to testify against Olson. Some even raised money for his defense. And now whenever you hear of a hostage who identifies with their captors instead of their rescuers, what do they call it? Stockholm Syndrome. Christian Enmark summed it up this way. She said, It's some kind of context you get into when all your values, the morals you have, change in some way. It's amazing, isn't it, how people get turned around? 
They can no longer tell the difference between the good guys or the bad guys. And it's amazing, isn't it, in Colossians 2, how people could not tell the difference between a religious act that is useless and one that is produced by the Spirit, one that is truly righteous before God. Couldn't tell the difference. We get so out of whack, we prefer legalism and bondage over love and grace. Now, what is legalism? We defined it last week. It can show up in a variety of ways. Number one for the people there in Colossians would be trying to hold on to Old Testament law that no longer applies, particularly ceremonial or civic law that we're not under in the New Testament. Or it could be adding to the Scripture some kind of commandment that's not there, saying that we're all obligated to it. And when we do this, what we imply is that in order to know God or in order to maintain a relationship with God, you have to keep these codes. And, of course, we're all familiar with it if we've been a part of church for more than 10 minutes, that there are subcultural codes involved, just depending on what church you're a part of, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't go to R-rated movies, and a whole list of things that people say are wrong. Now, we made the, the case last week that We're not saying you can't have a conviction about those things. You can. Maybe, for instance, you had a drinking problem. Now, you can't have one drip uh, of alcohol. Nothing wrong with that. The problem becomes when you say nobody else should have a drink. Nobody else should go to the R-rated movie. Nobody else can do this. That becomes legalism because what you're doing then is saying this subcultural code is something that everybody has to do in order to maintain a relationship with God. That is the legalism. And this is what Paul was talking against here. What we can do is kind of recount some of the things that we looked at as we recounted legalism and compared it with true spirituality. And if we look up on the screen, there is a a chart here, and some of this is added, and some of it we covered last week. But let's just quickly go through this. Legalism is self-righteous. True spirituality is spirit-produced fruit. Legalism is a fleshly religion, uh, whereas true spirituality is life in Christ, where, where Christ is the one energizing the, uh, the behavior. Legalism is condemning to others. It is guilt-driven. Not only do we put guilt on others, but we have a guilt within us that, about things that we do, whereas true spirituality is life-affirming. It's motivated out of love. We love God, so we want to do the right thing, not because we feel like that, you know, we have to do this in order to maintain something that's already been secured. Uh, Legalism is very prideful, whereas true spirituality is willingly admits sin. It's vulnerable. In legalism, the culture is the enemy. We're within uh, true spirituality. We are in the culture, but we are not dictated by its precepts. With legalism, uh, you're, you're critical of others, and you're often disappointed in the behavior of others. Whereas with true spirituality, I empathize with the sins of others. And I realize as others sin, you know what? But by the grace of God, go I, and I don't sit there and condemn. Legalism alienates from other people, particularly if they don't subscribe to your little cultural rules. And true spirituality is unifying. Legalism has us in bondage. True spirituality provides freedom. Legalism uh, emphasizes negative behaviors, whereas true spirituality focuses on the, the, the person and the work of Christ. And we realize that that is where our hope lies. True spirituality is impersonal 
uh, rule keeping, whereas, uh, excuse me, legalism is impersonal rule keeping. True spirituality is relational. Uh, I mentioned it focuses on self, negative behaviors, whereas true spirituality is prepared to serve. Um, I'm ADD, so I skipped over there. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, legalism threatened when outperformed. So whenever, you know, somebody's kids, you see their kids do something, and it's like, man, you know, they're really godly. Our kids need to have those, uh, those standards. Uh, and you feel like, you know, you've got you to keep up with somebody, right? Because they're doing this and you're not. Whereas true spirituality finds its, ex- its acceptance in Christ. I don't have to keep up with the Joneses when it comes to spiritual things. I'm okay. Uh, Christ loves me as I am, and let it be what it is. Uh, legalism minimizes, rationalizes, blames true spirituality, admits a sin, returns to active dependence on Christ. And with legalism, it finds identity in spiritual experiences, spiritual highs where, uh, for instance, uh, you go from, from one event to another and you subscribe that everybody else has to have that event or one experience. For instance, everybody has to speak in tongues. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with going to an event. Nothing wrong with going to a retreat. But what, what legalism does is everybody has to do this. Everybody has to be on this plan. Everybody has to have this event, have this experience instead of the, the growth of the New Testament is presented as a process. All right? So those are just hopefully... Uh, some practical ways that we can recognize the difference between legalism and true spirituality. Now, you cannot read that list and not recognize that every one of us have struggled at one point or another with legalism. I am guilty, okay? I shared last week uh, some, of the, some of the struggles that, uh, that I've had. And frankly, I'm tired of sharing about all my failures, so I'm not going to share about that again. So... If anything, I hope that today we realize that that there is hope that we can choose a different path than legalism. Amen? All right. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Notice the logic of Paul. If A is true then you need to be practicing B. B will follow. You have died with Christ. Now there's no longer need to submit to these regulations. The idea is more than just knowing the spiritual realities we have in Christ. We have to believe and walk in what? That we have died to something. This is a statement about reality for every Christian, that there has been a death that we have experienced. We had a death with Christ because we are in union with him, and this death cut off any need to be attached to what Paul says are the elemental spirits of the world. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. And let's talk a little bit about this death, Romans 6, starting with verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
So an old self died. All right? For no one, for, excuse me, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So he's making all these corollaries. Because there's been this death, then these things are true. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life to death and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We have been crucified with Christ. We died with Christ. His death was our death. And because of this union, we now enjoy certain benefits. And these are outlined in the passage. He said we are united with him in life. The body of sin is brought to nothing. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are set free from sin. We now live with Christ, and death no longer has dominion over us. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. My dear friend, do you realize all the virtues that we receive because of our union with Christ? And because this is true, that is to make a difference in how we approach life and how we actually live life. For instance, we are highly resourced in Christ. There is a treasure trove of resources in Christ that are available in no other entity. We read about this in John 1.16. From his fullness, we have all received. We are also abundantly blessed. Ephesians 1.3. He has, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Abundantly blessed. And check this out. Did you know that you are extremely rich in Christ? Ephesians 3.8 speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ available to us. All of these riches, all of these things we enjoy in Christ make us holy and blameless before God. So why would any of us want to mess around with dead religious stuff of the world that cannot hold a candle to what we enjoy in Christ? By comparison, the nature of legalism is of far less worth than of being in Christ. This useless religious activity of legalism is called the elemental spirits of the world. Now, by spirit, he could mean the origin of it in the, in the uh, demonic world, as we talked about in Timothy, who, when Paul made that point. But he says they're elemental. In other words, people who traffic in legalism are not as smart as they think. In fact, this stuff is for the simple-minded. It is rudimentary. 
by trafficking in the stuff of the world, the, the, just the outward symbols of religion. It's the world's perspective on rituals, festivals, and worship practices. The legalists are not progressive. They are not advanced. They are not even intelligent in terms of spirituality. They are, in fact, primitive and poverty-stricken. Listen, people can rattle on all about the origins of the universe. They can rattle on all about truth, philosophize about morals and ethics, about the afterlife. But no truth would be known about these things unless God revealed it to us. That's the truth of the matter. And mankind is retarded in understanding these things, particularly when he rejects God and he rejects God's revelation. So why traffic in religious musings that are earthly, strictly of this world, when you have died to the perceptions propagated by the world? How absurd is it for believers who no longer count the world as their home allow the world to dictate to them their perspective? It's inconsistent. So the origin of legalism makes it vastly inferior to life in Christ. And in verse 21, we read about the nature of legalism. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Now, these three things that we are to avoid, handling, touching, tasting, you know, again, cultural codes, all right, these are all items in the physical or human realm, human world. The nature of these rules uh, rooted in that realm are temporary. How can a religious system rooted in the temporary produce anything of eternal value? Legalists would counter, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. This asceticism, these rules, these things that we're having to do, this helps us to enjoy God's grace. This is a tool of God's grace. Visiting a confession booth, joining a church, abiding by a certain set of of subcultural rules. Uh, These are far more than just a sign of grace, particularly when they are obligatory. They are non-negotiable. And adherence to such things is a way to get or maintain a relationship with God. But this is contrived. And human, contrived, legalistic obligations do not satisfy a holy God. When you start with flesh, it begets flesh. The origin and nature of legalism make it a poor choice for our spiritual journey. Verse 23 delivers the final blow by showing the power of legalism makes it useless. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, it says that these legalistic standards have an appearance of wisdom, and I think this is where we need to be honest with ourselves and realize there is some attraction to it. It, it, it does appeal to 
our sense of control, a sense of pride, and this is the attraction. But it is powerless in really getting to the root and dealing with the flesh. I mean, when we deal only with external factors and neglect matters of the heart, we're only putting makeup on the problem, but we're not solving it. What creates the bondage is that we see ourselves as in control of sin via legalism. But listen, we are trading a fleshly expression of that particular sin for a fleshly expression of religion. You're not getting anywhere. And the trap is, is that when you sin, and we all sin, right? You try to avoid the guilt, and so that moves us to double down on the legalism. And it's the bondage of it. Unrelenting guilt is treated more by the flesh. And this moves us for more control, more legalism. It's just a tightly wound ball. And in the center of it is this pride and control. And you know what it is? It's a focus on self and not on Christ. Now listen, behavioral, external measures, I'm not suggesting that these things be ignored. The point is, that's just not the real problem. That's not the root, okay? For instance, let's say that someone has an issue with pornography. Now, I would say 90% of guys have struggled with pornography. The other 10% are liars. They may feel that the only way to deal with such sin, all right, is done by managing the effects. And so, let's say you're tempted by a particular situation with pornography. So, what do, you, what do we do? And again, these are all perpetrated within the, 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 the Christian culture. And I'm not dogging these particular things that I'm going to talk about. It's just that I don't think this is where the complete answer is. What do we do? Well, accountability partner. Accountability, big thing. I'm going to get somebody. who's going to call me every morning. Okay, make sure... You know, I didn't do whatever it was I was doing, all right? Call an accountability partner. Uh, or maybe in the middle of the temptation, take a cold shower, all right? Do that. That might help. Or put a filter on the Internet. Helpful, maybe. Uh, or I'll just stare at a picture of Jesus. Or maybe I'll go on a run, all right? Something, get my mind off the issue, avoid the sin. And even if there's, if there's one incident that I avoid, what I'm learning is that through self-effort, I can manage this thing, but here's the problem. You can, you can starve the body. You can limit your activities. You can cloister yourself from not having any outside influence. You can do religious rituals, but it's all window dressing. You've yet to address the heart. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Is the root of the problem on the inside or the outside? The inside. We read in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Jesus even addressed this issue 
by talking about the need to address the heart and talking about the uselessness of, of religious rituals or just dealing with it with external behaviors. He said this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You can do all this other stuff, these outward behaviors, but it doesn't fix the root of the issue. What does this mean in practical terms? Well, the first is this. We have to take responsibility for our own heart and our desires. What this means is I can't go around making excuses or blaming my parents, blaming the church, blaming Obama, blaming all these different reasons as to why I am not walking with Christ. And then when I address my heart, I realize that God has provided me with the tools in Christ to have victory. Check this out. We're given a new nature in Christ so that now I can have victory and say no to whatever the temptation is. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Well, how can such a thing be uttered unless we have the power in Christ to have victory over sin? Listen, Christ is able to meet the real need of the heart. If, let's, for instance, let's say that I'm jealous of somebody. Uh, do I battle the jealousy by outdoing that other person? No. The real need is in my heart. I have to be honest with what's going on. And I realize that in Christ, he can meet that need. He can fill me up with him to where I can find satisfaction in him. Uh, let's say I'm tempted in a sexual nature. Right? The real need is not satisfying the flesh at that moment, but in experiencing the love of Christ who can fill the heart more than a thousand sexual encounters can fill. I know that I am beloved. I know that I am valued by God. And how do I access this? Well, that's where prayer and the word of God become invaluable tools in my communion with Christ. I mean, if Christ truly meets the need, there's got to be communion with him. Otherwise, it's just a picture on the wall. Can't Christ in the middle of that need really intervene and touch the heart, touch the soul at that moment? I'm submitting to you. That's our only answer. It's why Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Grow them in the truth. Thy word is truth. In this Twitter age, though, we cannot wait five seconds. Once you get the impulse, man, I've got to meet the need. 
be still and know that he is God. Allow him time to minister. Here's more insight that God gives us. Do they not err that plan evil? Those who plan good find loyalty and faithfulness. Proverbs 14.22. And then in Proverbs 12.20, deceit is in the mind of those who plan evil, but those who counsel peace have joy. Beloved, sin germinates with stinking thinking. Okay? The world, the flesh, the devil all lie to us, deceive us. But listen, we are not left in the dark. Paul wrote in Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So we, God has outfitted us to have victory, but we also need to know that Satan sets the stage in the temptation for us to sin. There's a plan involved. And so here are some questions to help us maybe get at the root. How have I been set up by temptation in the past? For instance, particularly with sexual temptation, uh, when you're hungry, tired, lonely, those aren't, Janet, what's the other? It's halt. Angry, that's the other one. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, thank you. And those are ways that we're typically vulnerable to temptation. Uh, What unmet need is presented in my heart? How is sin presented or staged? What is it I really want or desire? So for instance, okay, I'm a married person. Let's say I am tempted by another person who maybe shows some encouragement, who maybe shows some affection. Sin has begun to set me up. I have an unmet uh, emotional need. That need is not met at home, I say to myself. I mean, I have a right to get my needs met, don't I? Right? I mean, I have a right to be happy now, don't I? Hopefully you notice deceit has begun to fill the heart. I have to take time to be honest with myself, to be honest of what's going on in my own spirit, and allow God to minister to my heart and reveal the real need so that I can find satisfaction and love in him. You may feel adequate because your friends got a new house. They got a new car. So you're tempted to add a boatload of material possessions, okay, to your pile. But you know what? You need to be leveraged up to your earlobes in order to get that. And you feel it's necessary to be effective in the business world. I mean, don't I have to put on an appearance of success? That's what we tell ourselves. Doesn't my spouse deserve these things? I mean, I deserve these things. I've worked hard for this, right? Deceit has filled your heart And if you took the time to be honest with God and to be honest with yourself, you could allow God to give you contentment even with that home that is smaller, even with that car. There are no substitutes for taking responsibility for our heart 
and allowing the Holy Spirit to show us the real need, allowing Christ to minister to us at the deepest level. My friends, this is why I find worship of him so satisfying. I find his word so fulfilling. I find the fellowship so sweet because all of these things help me to keep my focus on him. I have a hard time understanding people who get all hung up about the worship not being this, not being that, fellowship not being this, not being that. It's like, really? If, if your heart was in the right place, you would be so hungry for a drop of it. I don't care what the style is. I don't care this person doesn't sing the songs I like. <laughs> I need worship. My heart needs this. I need to be fed with the word. I realize that my perspective toward God, seeing him as a God who values me, is so important in this scenario. When Janet and I went to Alaska, we got back about a month ago, we spent considerable time with a family who has two small children. The mother attended CCC when, when she lived here. And every day, without fail, the children would say to Janet and I, they would say, Kevin, I love you. Or they would say to Janet, Janet, you are awesome. Now, not just once, but many times throughout the day. And th- th- those two things, you are awesome. I love you. And I, I got to thinking, you know, when I first heard this, okay, now these kids either want money, they want candy. All right, what is it they are after? It was none of that. <laughs> it was just odd because you don't meet a lot of children like that, right? All right? They actually seemed to enjoy our company and affectionately told us so. My dear friends, God loves your company. And he loves to show affection towards you. He values you. He sees you in that group picture in third grade and says, Oh, there's Sally. I love her. I just love this girl. She is so valuable to me. That's God. He has your picture in his back pocket, right? He loves you. It is why he became flesh to dwell among us so that he could commune, communicate, have intimate fellowship with you and I. That's how special you are. That's how valued you are by him. And in the end, listen, in the end, there is no greater need and no better way to touch the deepest part of us than to be reconciled and loved by God. If I lived in that, where else do those temptations fall? They just fall by the wayside. When Christ is my life, when I'm communing with him, the answer is Christ. The answer is not Christ plus something, Christ plus a subcultural code. The answer is Christ plus nothing. In him, we have all we need to live the abundant life. And when Christians opt for legalism, they opt for a cheap substitute. They opt for junk. Homer and Langley Collier were sons of a respected New York doctor. Both attended Columbia University. Homer studied law, Langley engineering. Langley was also an accomplished pianist who had played in Carnegie Hall. 
when their father died in 1923, their mother died a few years later, they received the family mansion and entire estate in New York. Now, they were in a section that was going to be later infested with crime. Both boys were bachelors, and both were financially secure. But they chose a rather strange life. Instead of engaging the culture, instead of being philanthropists, instead of of, of doing some good with what God had given them, even though they had received a fortune, they lived in seclusion. They boarded up the windows, padlocked the doors of this great house, and they basically neglected anything to do with the outside world. The utilities, including the water, were shut off. No one was seen coming or going from the house. It appeared empty. In fact, on one occasion, authorities arrived at the door because they had neglected the mortgage. <laughs> so they, they pried open the door, and there was junk, including newspapers, filled to the ceiling. They could not even enter the house. There was a little tunnel And there was Langley standing there, disgusted that they had come to try to collect this money. So what he did is wrote them a check and just paid off the house so that they would not arrive again and bother them. On March 21st, 1947, police received an anonymous telephone tip that someone had died inside this boarded up house. The stench was so bad, the neighbors called. But now unable to force their way into the first floor, the authorities had to go to the second floor through a window to enter into the home. And inside, they found Homer's corpse on a bed. He died clutching an old newspaper, even though he had been blind for years. And the macabre scene was equally grotesque in its backdrop because... The brothers, for decades, had been collecting junk, and every room was filled with broken machinery, auto parts, boxes, appliances, umbrellas, folding chairs, musical instruments, rags, assorted odds and ends, and bundles of old newspapers, and most of it was completely worthless. They could not find Langley until three weeks later as workmen were still hauling heaps of trash away from the home. They made the grisly discovery that Langley's body was only 10 feet away from his brothers. They had set up a booby trap to have all kinds of trash pile in and kill some intruder and somehow Langley had become entrapped and died and 10 feet away his body was from his brother. They were trying to protect the junk from thieves. Eventually, the authorities in New York piled up 120 tons of garbage from the one home. These men had money. They had an inheritance, but they hoarded it. They could have contributed to society but they chose to live protecting themselves from outside influences. Many Christians hoard their holiness 
pile up their self-righteousness while neglecting their riches in Christ. Instead of trying to protect ourselves, could we not venture out in service on mission for Jesus Christ using whatever God allows us, allows us to hold, to use for his pleasure? My friends, we cannot spurn our Heavenly Father's inheritance and end up with wood, hay, and stubble. Instead, God has given us an abundance of riches in Christ so that we can live life influencing the culture, equipping one another, loving well as, as a unified body, as ambassadors of Christ daily, depending on Christ to live his life out through us. That is the abundant life. And I realize that all the things of the world that I might be tempted to grab a hold to and make an idol of, including man-made religion, doesn't hold a candle to this life in Christ. Let's pray.